So can you tell if it's Christmas yet? Has Christmas dawned on your radars? Uh, has it begun to be Christmas in your home and in your family? You can tell uh, here that it's, it's begun to be Christmas here, and, um, and that's a good thing. It kind of was cemented for me yesterday when uh, Shirley and I were out doing some, some shopping, and, and I don't know, maybe you're a Black Friday person, and so that's the kickoff for you with Black Friday and next, you know, Cyber, Monday and so, Cyber Monday, and so it's all shopping and all that kind of thing. But we were out, and, and we noticed you know, in, in the neighborhood that we live in, and we were visiting some friends last night in their neighborhood, a lot more houses have their Christmas lights out. Yesterday was a good day to be putting up the lights and lighting up the night, and, and I love you know, the the neighborhoods that are, are lit up and the homes that are lit up and, and it's a beautiful part of the season. And then also we were driving home and uh, we, we passed a guy and he had a Christmas tree sticking out the trunk of his car, right? And so I thought, well, there it is. That's, that's Christmas. These guys have already got their tree. They're taking it home to put it up and decorate it and it's going to be awesome. So it's Christmas. It's Christmas time. And uh, it's a great thing for us to begin to celebrate once again this wonderful story of the birth, of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you know where the story begins? Where does the story begin for you? When you think of Christmas and you think of the manger scene and you think of how we celebrate it, where does the story begin for you? Uh, does it begin with the Annunciation? where the angel comes to Mary and says, you're highly favored and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're, you're going to become pregnant and the child is going to be the, 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 the son of the Most High, he's going to be Messiah. Is that where the story begins for you? Well, what I wanted to do today was I wanted to back up to the very, very start of the story, to the very first verse in our New Testaments, which is Matthew chapter 1, and verse 1. Because for today, the story starts here. This is where the New Testament begins. This is where, where Matthew begins to tell his story. And he begins it with this verse. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. He begins it with a genealogy. Now, if you've been around church for very long, you know that, that there are two genealogies in the Gospels. Luke has one in chapter 3, after he tells the birth story. And in Matthew, he starts off his story of the birth of Jesus with the genealogy. And I don't know if you've heard many sermons preached on the genealogy. I'm sure that you have over the years if you've been around long enough because we're always looking at, at this story and coming at it fresh every year saying, God, show us, show us even greater wonder and greater insight to this story because it's just so rich, it's so alive, it's so foundational to who we are as the people of God. And as I unpacked the genealogy and began to look at Matthew's genealogy, uh, I just, it just became so, so much more fascinating to me, and I want to share a little bit of that with you as we kind of introduce our, our theme of hope uh, for this Advent season. So Matthew's gospel begins with this genealogy. And when you look at the different you know, uh, scholars that have, have studied this and look at it, it's a little bit of a mystery as to why he does it and the way he does it. There are many theories that, that scholars have as to what Matthew was trying to do and who he was trying to reach, but it's quite a bit, it's, it's, it's kind of an unusual thing that he does here, and it's in that unusualness that we get a little bit of insight and we glean a little bit of information about what's going on in Matthew's mind as he prepares us to hear this story. 
Expositor's Greek New Testament commentary says that the genealogy in Matthew is not so much given to prove the legitimacy of Jesus' birth, but rather to remind us of the providence of God that culminates in the birth of Jesus. The genealogy shows how the two great redemptive promises that were held out to the people of God in the Old Testament were about to be met and fulfilled in Jesus. The promise to Abraham that out of Abraham's seed would come a blessing for all nations. And the promise to David that out of David's ancestry there would never fail to be a king who would be able to sit on the throne as God's anointed. And that that one day that king, Messiah, would come and restore all things to God on behalf of Israel. These two great promises. And these promises absolutely drove the Jewish people. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they held on to these promises. And as Matthew begins his story, his telling of the story, he reminds them of these two great promises, and he's about to tell them that these promises are both met and fulfilled in this birth of this child, Jesus. Matthew sets up his genealogy. I'm not going to read through it because it's a whole bunch of begets, 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 but you're going to see in a slide some of the names in a second. But he sets it up in three sets of 14. So he starts and he gives 14 and another 14 and another 14. And there are three divisions of the history of Israel. The first is the time from Abraham to King David, which is the period of the law. The next is the time from King David to the Babylonian captivity, which is the period of the monarchy. And then the third is the time from after the captivity to Jesus, which is the time of the exile and return or the time of the prophets. And so that's the way that he, he structures it. But the fascinating thing is, even though it's a genealogy, there are significant gaps. There are significant gaps. It's not a straight line from one to the other. The fascinating thing about this genealogy is who's in and who's not. Who's included and who's not. And, uh, and this is where it gets a little bit interesting. So you'd expect the greats, Right? You'd expect the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? You're going to expect, you're going to expect the, the great kings. You're going to expect King David. You're going to expect Hezekiah. You're going to expect Josiah, right? Um, and because it's a genealogy, you know, there also have to be a few of the bad guys thrown in there. So, so Manasseh, who was the most wicked king of, of all, is thrown in there and, and all of the other kings. But between some of these, there are gaps of up to 400 years between some of these individual names, so Matthew isn't just clearly giving, you know, a, a historical record. You know, if you go to Ancestry.com, I guess, and you start looking for your ancestors, and you can trace it all the way back as far as you can, and you're looking for every connection. Well, he wasn't doing that. He didn't have Ancestry.com. He had the Jewish tradition. He had, you know, the, the history of the Jewish people and those kinds of things. And as he was putting it together, remember he had three sets of 14. 14 is a significant number. It's two times seven, completeness. All, all this stuff is meaningful to the Jewish people. It doesn't mean much to you and I, but it had great meaning for them. And it was all symbolic. But the point was that Matthew was putting this genealogy together in such a way to prove a point. And he was trying to prove the point that the promises to Abraham and to David were met in Jesus in this birth. And they would have understood that. The Jewish audience to whom Matthew's gospel is written would have understood that. They wouldn't have minded the gaps. They would have been able to figure it out. 
But the real wrinkle is that he includes women in his genealogy. That was completely unnecessary. And I don't mean that as a slam. I'm simply speaking historically, it just wasn't done. Right? It wasn't done. This is highly unusual that he includes women. So we say, okay, all right, we get that. You know, Jesus is inclusive, and, and he, was, he was, you know, he and his movement radicalized the acceptance of women in the culture, and they absolutely did that. So it makes sense then that Matthew would include women. Good enough. Who should he include? Which women should he include? Well, obviously, if he's got the matriarchs, he's going to want to include, or the, the patriarchs, he's going to want to include the matriarchs. The great women of Scripture, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, the, the female founders of the nation. Yeah, that's not the ones he includes. No, doesn't include them. Instead, he includes these four. Tamar, who was the widow of Judas, Judah's eldest son, Ur, by whom Judah incestuously had two children. Rahab, the prostitute at Jericho, who aided the spies in their escape before the city fell to the Israelites. Ruth, the Moabitess woman who felt, who, whose love for her mother-in-law led her to embrace Yahweh as her God. And Bathsheba, who's not even named, but is clearly being identified. She's referred to as the wife of Uriah, who was killed by King David after he committed adultery with her. These are the four women that Matthew includes in the genealogy. This begs the question, Why? What's the point? What's he trying to say? Why is he trying to do this? And as I said, there are different theories and scholars approach this in, in different ways. And quite frankly, nobody knows for sure. But I favor the idea that has been around the longest. And that is the idea that was put forward by the church fathers. That what Matthew is trying to do is remind us that this genealogy is the genealogy of the gospel. And it's a foreshadowing of grace. It's a foreshadowing of God's incredible divine providence that sweeps in things that don't belong, that things that don't fit, that things that, that you know, we, if we were kind of approaching this, you know, legally or, or righteously or whatever other way we were approaching it, we would never think to include some individuals. They just wouldn't fit. But in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of grace, in God's great sweep of providence, he pulls them in. He draws them in. And so as the Israelites, as the Jews would have rehearsed this genealogy and thought it through and thought of these women, they would, oh yeah, that, that wasn't a high point in our history. Oh yeah, 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 no, no, yeah, we got it, we got it a bit wrong there. Oh yeah, that's a, bit an off, that's a bit of an embarrassing story. But these were all part of their stories. And that was his point. His point was that over 42 generations, God was at work in the good and in the bad, moving history, moving his people through, bringing them to this point. It all came together. It all had a place. God was at work in all of that. And each of these individuals, in their own way, chose Yahweh when the opportunity came for them. And they were recognized for their faith. And they were recognized, even though they, they were outsiders or they were sinners or they were bro or whatever it was, it didn't matter. And part of that is a huge encouragement for all of us. And that's the beauty of this story. That's the beauty of this Christmas story. 
That we are reminded of just as when the Jews are about to learn about Jesus' story and it begins with the genealogy and they read the genealogy and they're reminded by Matthew that their story isn't a pretty one, but it is a providential one and it is one of grace and one of mercy. And now we can talk about Jesus. And just as Matthew reminds them, you and I, as we approach this season and we think of the birth story, we are reminded of the scope of God's grace and goodness that this is a story that sweeps out to include everyone. That, is, that no one is excluded and that even those that we think don't fit can be drawn in. The promises to Abraham and David were being fulfilled in this birth announcement after hundreds and hundreds of years, 42 generations. Think about that. If you're a grandparent or maybe you're a great-grandparent, if you're a great-grandparent, that represents four generations. So all you need to do now is add 38 more greats to that. Okay? So I was going to put the slide up with, with you know, 30, 38 greats uh, before grandfather, and that would kind of get us, well, maybe it's 39 actually, my math is off. 39, right? So you need 39 greats. That's how many generations are being mentioned by Matthew. That's how far back this story goes that Matthew wants them to understand God has been at work all through it. At every step, at every stage, God has been... And, he, and can you imagine what it must have been like then for this moment, for this to be the moment now, for the angel to say, here, now is the time, the time is fulfilled, here it is. For 42 generations, we've been waiting for these promises to be fulfilled, and now the angel speaks to Mary, and the angel speaks to Joseph, and says, this baby is going to be the fulfillment of those promises. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Well, in the next two weeks, that's what we're going to hear when Elizabeth speaks from Mary's perspective, and, jo and, and uh, Robert Cumberbatch speaks from Joseph's perspective, and they enter into that story to kind of get inside that space and say, what was it like to be told that you now are going to be the ones who bring into the world the fulfillment of 42 generations worth of waiting for the promise? The people of God had kept that promise in their hearts. They lived in its hope. They had returned to it over and over again, waiting for its fulfillment. And the story was not a straight line. It had many twists and turns, highs and lows. It overcame tragedy. It reached out to include outcasts and those left behind. Its sweep was great, but it never gave up. It kept moving forward in the hope of the promise that God would do what God had said he would do. The genealogy reminds the reader of all of that and prepares the reader for the fulfillment of the promises in the birth story of Jesus. And hope does that. That's what hope does. This Christmas, the promise of hope, looking through the eyes of Mary and Joseph and those in the Christmas story, as hope was being fulfilled, hearing the word that this child would be the one and, and all they had was the promise that this child was the fulfillment of hope. And here's the thing about hope. Hope is not just about the future. Hope is about the present. Hope gives us power in the present. 
Hope wasn't just something that they were saying, well, what, you know, Jesus one day, he's going to be great one day. No, no. When they received the promise and they were realizing that this was the fulfillment, they began to act and behave and make decisions in a way that moved them in the direction of the fulfillment of that promise. We're going to hear that over the next few weeks. And that's what hope does. Hope isn't just about the future, it's about the present. It empowers us for today. Eugene Lang was a self-made millionaire who visited a sixth grade class in East Harlem. And this school in East Harlem was, was um, you know, your typical school in an in a impoverished neighborhood. Uh, the kids really had no, no hope for the future. They really didn't have any much, much prospects. They were mostly marginalized, members of marginalized communities in this school. And when Eugene Lang visited the school, he wondered, he said, what am I going to say to sixth graders? How am I going to kind of inspire them and give them encouragement for the future? So what he did was this. He said to the class, and there were 59 students in that class, he said, I'll tell you what. If you stay in school, I'll pay for your college education. How many of those kids do you think went on to college? 90%. 90% of those kids finished high school and he went on to, to go to college. That's the power of hope. One of the kids said, I finally had a reason. I finally had a reason and a hope for the future. Now when, when Eugene Ladd said that, when he said, if you finish school, I'll pay for your college education, he didn't put the check in the bank. He simply said, if you, if you persevere, if you get to this point, I'll do it. Those students then had to make decisions. They had to decide how were they going to live. How, how did that promise change the way they approached their schooling, their education? It inspired them. It gave them encouragement. It gave them a reason to persevere. And that's what hope does. That's what hope does. Just as for the Jewish people, the hope of the promise of Messiah empowered them to rise above every challenge, to keep returning to God. When they fell down and stumbled, they got back up again because they refused to let go of the hope of God's promise that what God said he would do, he would do. And he did. And he did. On that night in Bethlehem, as the song says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. What hope is stirring your life right now? What hope is giving you the courage to face whatever circumstances are in front of you? What hope propels you forward step by step toward the absolute promise of God that has captured your heart? The birth of Jesus reminds us that despite all adversity, God is a God who keeps his promises. There is no if with God, there is only when. If God has said it, God will do it. So what is the hope that gets you up every morning to face every day? John Maxwell said this, he said, there is no hope. where there is no hope in the future, there is no power in the present. And he went on to say this, he says, Hope shines brightest when the hour is darkest. Hope motivates when discouragement comes. Hope energizes when the body is tired. 
Hope sweetens while bitterness bites. Hope sings when all melodies are gone. Hope believes when evidence is eliminated. Hope listens for answers when no one is talking. Hope climbs over obstacles when no one is helping. Hope endures hardship when no one is caring. Hope smiles confidently when no one is laughing. Hope reaches for answers when no one is asking. Hope presses toward victory when no one is encouraging. Hope dares to give when no one is sharing. Hope brings the victory when no one is winning. That's the power of hope. And as the people of God, we are a people of hope. We are a people who live a daring hope. We live lives that reflect our conviction in the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ and yet to come. Our lives reflect our daring hope in those promises. And this is what hope does. It gives us encouragement, it gives us strength, it gives us power for the day. Look what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 22 to 25. I'm reading this from the message, where he says, All around us we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. I love the way he he positions that and says that. You know, do we see everything? Do we see all the fulfillment? Do we see everything that Jesus has promised in the here and now? No, we don't. Paul says we see through a glass darkly. One day we're going to see it even more fully. One day we'll experience in fullness all that God has promised us. But waiting for that doesn't mean that we put that on the shelf and go about our business as ordinary human beings. We move toward it. We live into it. We live as if it were real now. And it is our hope in the reality of that which God has promised that gives us the encouragement to live the way we want to live and ought to live and need to live today. As followers of Jesus, we should be people of hope, of daring hope. People who dare to believe that what God has said, God will do. And hope gives us the courageous ability to face the future with the expectation that God is faithful and God will fulfill his promises. So my question for you today as we enter into this Advent season is, what are you hoping for this Christmas season? What hope gives you courage day by day? What has God said that you are still waiting for? Perhaps it's healing. Perhaps you're dealing with a life-threatening illness or a chronic illness or something that is so debilitating and you're waiting for God to heal you. How does the promise that he makes to heal you in one day give you courage to face today and every day? Is our hope in that promise empowering us to live the lives that reflect that hope? in the everyday. Perhaps you're hoping for the salvation of a spouse 
or a child or a family member, someone who doesn't yet know how much God loves them in Jesus Christ, and you, your heart breaks for them. You live with them, you know them, you, you just, you're, you're anguishing for them, you're so longing for them. Does the promise that your faithfulness will reflect upon them and lead to their salvation, does that promise give you the hope and the encouragement to live every day your life out of the reality of that promise? To take every single moment of every day and live it in the light of that hope. Maybe you're waiting for the second coming of Jesus. Maybe for you, all of the hopes rest upon that. That Jesus, as Jeff said, just as he came, promised to come again. And so you're looking to that day in the future and you're, you're hanging on the edge of your seat waiting for the day that Jesus is going to come and he's going to take care of everything and, and solve every problem. No more tears, no more sorrow. Kingdom of God in its fullness. And that's the promise that you are waiting for. Okay. How does waiting for that promise give you courage to live your life today? How does that promise live out in the choices you make, in the decisions you make, in the way you live your life today? That's what hope does. That's what hope does. How does hope shape our lives? There's a song I, last year I discovered the uh, Hillsong Christmas um, album called The Peace Project. And uh, it's terrific. I love it. If, you, if you've never heard of it, I encourage you to, to go in and listen to it. But there's a song in that called Seasons. And uh, it's from the, the, the Peace Project. And here's just a few of the lyrics. I just, we were list- Shirley and I were listening to it again this morning. And uh, here's what it's, the lyrics of that song say. Though the winter is long, even richer the harvest it brings. Though my waiting prolongs, even greater your promise for me like a seed. I believe that my season will come. I can see the promise. I can see the future. You're the God of seasons, and I'm just in the winter. If all I know of harvest is that it's worth my patience, then if you're not done working, God, I'm not done waiting. You can see my promise even in the winter, because you're the God of greatness even in the manger. For all I know of seasons is that you take your time. You could have saved us in a second. Instead, you sent a child. Though the winter is long, even richer, the harvest it brings. Though my waiting prolongs even greater, your promise for me like a seed, I believe that my season will come. My prayer this Advent season is that you will be stirred with hope. That as we tell the story again and as we see the story through Mary's eyes and Joseph's eyes and we remind ourselves of all that is wrapped up in this miraculous birth of this child Jesus, of all of the fulfillment of promises, that just as God met his promise to Abraham and his promise to David in the birth of this child, my prayer is that you and I will be encouraged that the promises he has made to you and I as followers of Jesus, he will keep in due season. And my prayer is that you and I, by believing that, will choose to live our lives in the light of that hope, even now. What are you hoping for this Christmas? I'm hoping for courage, and for faith, and for joy, and for peace, 
and for our light to shine brighter than it's ever shone before. Amen.